friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences and outside of the walls and confines of institutional religion. Thank you so much for joining us uh, as we continue to replay some of our old favorite episodes uh, from the first two seasons. Um, we are, if you're listening to this as uh, as it's released here in early October of 2021, we're just a few weeks away from uh, season number three of the podcast. Brandon and I have uh, some really cool um, guests and ideas lined up for what we're going to release to you during season three. Um, but until then, um, we're we're kind of going back in the vaults a little bit and wanted to revisit um, for this episode uh, an interview we did really early on in season number one with Shane Claiborne. You may know Shane Claiborne for his work as uh, an author and an activist. He is one of the um, founding leaders of the Red Letter Christians movement, very involved in the, the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, and is just doing a lot of really interesting work in the world, and, and his work continues to evolve. Uh, so we wanted to just take a quick look back at this interview with Shane that we did uh, back in May, I think, of, of 2019. Uh, so please, once again, give a very warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Shane Claiborne. We're living in a time that may be another great awakening, you know, a beautiful renewal or a new reformation that's happening in the church. We're really happy to welcome uh, Shane Claiborne to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. A lot of you may know Shane by his work. Um, Shane, you and I actually, you probably don't remember it, but it was more memorable for me. We met at Wild Goose Festival last year um, a couple of times, actually, but uh, the most memorable time for me was we had a really interesting conversation in um, Pete Enz's um, convo hall chat about should we continue yeah. to use the label Christianity? Um, and so, yeah, we got a chance to be in a little bit of conversation there. Uh, and that, that was that was really interesting. And that was kind of what started um, the idea in my head that maybe we could conspire on something like this somewhere down the road. Because yeah, um, you said some really interesting things there. Uh, so if you would, like I say, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with who you are and, and with some of the work uh, that you're doing. But if you could give us just a little, you know, the Reader's Digest version of the Shane Claiborne uh, background, um, and then we'll we'll kind of go from there. Well, thank you, man. Yeah, it's good to be on your show here. I, I'm a Southern boy that grew up in East Tennessee, fell in love with Jesus, uh, ended up going to college up here in Philadelphia at a wonderful little school, Eastern University. It's about a half hour outside of Philly. Uh, and while I was in college undergrad there, I was studying sociology and studying the Bible and a group of homeless moms moved into an abandoned Catholic church building. Um, and at the time there were thousands of families on the waiting list for housing and shelter space in Philly. And so they didn't have anywhere to go. And they saw this old church building and said, we ought to be able to make that home for now. And so they moved into it and, uh, um, Sadly, the Catholic Church considered them trespassing and gave them an eviction notice, and that didn't stop them, though. The families uh, held a press conference and said, we've talked to the real owner of this building, the Lord Almighty. <laughs> <laughs> and God said, we can stay until we have somewhere else to go. So they that, that sparked a real student solidarity movement for us, and we became involved in that struggle for housing, fell in love with this neighborhood on the north side of Philly, and 
um, as we as I graduated from college, we started the simple way. So we've been mm. here, man, alive uh, over twenty years wow. now. Wow! Wow! Build, building a little community here, uh, and of course, you know, all, all kinds of stuff happened uh, 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 in between. You know, all that we uh, went to India, spent some time with uh, Mother Teresa and the nuns there that uh, taught me a lot about love and taught me a lot about Jesus and. Um, yeah, man. So we've been, we've been doing it here. And then I'm heading up a, a group of folks called red letter Christians these days. That's I, I kind of have one foot. I walk on locally with my community at the simple way. Right. And then we've got the movement work with red letter Christians, which right. comes from the old Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red. And that's what we say. We want a Christianity that acts like Jesus again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about that here. Um, as we go forward, I think I kind of, I first became aware of your work probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, I was starting to become aware of folks like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and, um, was kind of in a, probably some kind of a deconstruction. I don't think I had that language for it yet then. Um, but just kind of unpacking, you know, the, the faith that I'd grown up with and some of the inconsistencies that I was seeing and, and, and people like, like you and, and Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and some of those folks were starting to give me a, a different and what I thought was a better view of Jesus than, than what I felt like I'd sort of inherited. Um, and and I think at that time I kind of needed that because I, I think otherwise my deconstruction would have spiraled into like nihilism, you know. Yeah, um, sure. And um, but but to see that that Jesus wasn't just this human extension of some angry God, but was really you know a human representative of a God that was love, and so and that seems to be a lot of you know kind of what informs your ethos in the world. So. What what was it you would say informed that view of Jesus? Did, was that something that you really did literally grow up with, or did you come to that that kind of view of Jesus later in life? Or? Well, uh, you know, one of my na- I saw, I get some of my best theology from my neighbors, and one of them who speaks Spanish for you know as her first language, she says sometimes we make all this stuff too complicated, you know, like uh, uh, the incarnation, you know, academics and intellectuals, uh, you know, do all this talking and talking but uh, at the end of the day she said when you order your burrito con carne it means with meat and uh and she said that's that's what I, jesus is is god with meat you know con carne incarnate uh so you know in jesus god put skin on you know it's love with fleshed out you know uh and, and in a way that we can wrap our hands around and follow and so um that uh, that that idea, you know, obviously at the center of red letter Christians is that Jesus is the lens through which we interpret the Bible yeah. and the, the lens through which we interpret the world. So there's a lot of great uh, theology out there these days on that. But, you know, some of it comes from the streets, too. It's it's uh, um, this idea that Christians are to act like Jesus. You know, that's what Christian means, Christ-like. And, you know, obviously we haven't always lived up to that high calling. Yeah. And, and uh, there's a lot of versions of Christianity that, that, as I like to say, they don't pass the sniff test. You know, they, yeah, don't, yeah. they don't smell like Jesus. Uh, so I don't see, you know, uh, I, th- I think a tree is known by its fruits. Jesus said they'll know that we are Christians by our love. So that's what we're after. Um, yeah, but growing up, you know, I, I had lots of different experiences with the church. I mean, I was in the Bible Belt, you know, in the thick of it. So I, I grew up Methodist, but then my, my parents were Southern Baptist. I mean, my grandparents were Baptist. My uh, um, friends in high school were charismatic, so I got involved in kind of the charismatic uh, 
side of things, which there's parts that I loved, you know, the idea that God's still alive in the world, miracles yeah, yeah. are possible, the fire, the spirit, you know, got rebaptized, and, you know, there's still a lot of that's in, that that's inside of me. And I think in most of the church traditions that we come out of, there's a, uh, there's treasures that are worth holding on to and there's plenty of bones, you know, that we need to spit out. But, uh, I'm kind of a spiritual mutt now, you know, I've been formed by my charismatic, uh, uh, side of things. I've been still got the Methodist, uh, uh, you know, DNA in me. I've got uh, the Catholics that have helped shape me. So, um, yeah, man. And, 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 you know, I, so I think there's things that are worth deconstructing, um, but I, you know, I have some concerns about uh, uh, some of the things that are happening in, in our culture that uh, are sort of just reacting to the most toxic versions of uh, evangelicalism. Um, and they, sometimes I think we can give that too much power. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. You know, in West Virginia, we we call folks like that methobapticostals, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so we, yeah, we're all in Appalachia. We've got a lot of uh, those kind of spiritual mutts, as you as you put it here. But yeah, I think I think you're right about that idea that um, we very often want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, when it comes to um, matters of religion and spirituality, that um, yeah, there's certainly things that need to be critiqued. Um, but, you know, there, there's still a lot of good at the heart of it, too. And and I think that's, you know, what I see a lot of the work you're doing and what we're trying to do um, with with this podcast and some of the other work I'm involved in is how can we drill down to that good, the, the concarne, right? The the good Jesus meat, so to speak, of, you know, what we have in common and, and what we're really called to do. I was um, I was at Asbury Seminary in the around 2011 to 2014. And I remember when I was there, you were doing. At some point, you were doing a series of interviews with um, J.D. Walt there um, for the Seedbed site. And I remember, um, in fact, I went back and watched it the other day. You did a little video with him about the Sermon on the Mount. And I think at that time, I was probably taking a, um, you know, an inductive Bible study class or something on Matthew. And I was really deep into that text. And and some of what you were saying and reading um, Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, kind of sent me into this deep dive on the Sermon on the Mount. And I know that's something, you know, when we talk about the red letters, that's something um, that, that I've read that really informs your um, kind of, you know, your faith in action um, kind of motivation. Um, could you talk a little bit about why you find the Sermon on the Mount so compelling and and what maybe, you know, other Christians might do to see? Because what's happened for me is I've that's become kind of my lens to view the whole Bible, right? I more yeah, or less yeah. interpret everything through the Sermon on the Mount. And so, um, yeah, what, what do you find compelling about that? How does it continue to motivate your day-to-day work? Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, you know, it was Gandhi. He read the Sermon on the Mount pretty much every day. And I, I like when, you know, he was asked about Christianity. He said, oh, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like them, more like him. You know, they uh, Christians so often look look very uh, unlike their Christ. And I, you know, I, I, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, you, you really couldn't come up with much more of a countercultural message, uh, you know, and lifestyle. I, I think, I think that a lot of what I grew up with in the church was, just about a belief system, you know, a set of doctrines yeah. that you 
kind of signed on the bottom line of, but that what I love about Jesus is you don't see that. I mean, it's not an invitation just to uh, a doctrine, you know, it, it, the word becomes flesh and we see like in Jesus, an invitation to join a, a revolution, a movement of God's yeah. love in the world, you know, and, and that means um, holding our possessions differently. You know, Jesus said, uh, live like the lilies and the sparrows. They don't worry about tomorrow. Sell your possessions and give them the poor, you know, and Jesus said, love your enemies. He questioned, you know, kind of the boundaries of love and pushed us to extend beyond uh, family. As he said, you know, unless you're, you, you love bigger than your own biology and you get born again. I mean, we've made that a lot of that language pretty uh, trite and cliche, but yeah. you know, Mother Teresa said one of our biggest problems is that the circle that we put around our family is too small. Mm. That's a great line. The yeah. circle we put around our family is too small. So, you know, that's why nationalism and patriotism are uh, so dangerous is that they just, they're, they're too small. You know, we're to love as big as God loves and God's love uh, is bigger than biology. It's bigger than national nationality, you know, and um, this idea that we're born again, uh, that, you know, is, is a radical, radical idea. You know, it says if someone's suffering on the other, other side of a wall on our border, it's as tragic as if it was our own flesh and blood, yeah. you know, our own mom or dad or child. So that call to love big, um, is there, but you know, some of the other stuff Jesus does in the sermon on the Mount is he, you know, he pronounces the beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, the merciful, mm. uh, you know, and, and he's emphasizing all these, these folks that have really been pushed aside. And yeah. I mean, you, you look at the values of our, uh, kind of contemporary culture and the, the dominant systems of power and, you know, we bless the already blessed. We we don't bless the meek. You know, you want the proud. <laughs> yeah, you, don't, yeah. you don't want the peacemakers. You want the folks that are going to annihilate the enemy, you know? So, yeah, I, I think Jesus's message is an affront to so much that we've come to uh, uh, adore in America. And he really kind of names the uh, idolatry of, of, of America. You know, I mean, Trump, I think, is just the latest manifestation of that. But there's yeah. so much that Trump has only surfaced. You know, he's a symptom of I think that's that's kind of um, um, emboldened some of the worst principalities and powers that were already there in America. But you kind of you you, you and that's that's why, you know, I, I find so much uh, of a problem with Trump uh, policies and lifestyle is it's not that I'm anti Trump. I'm just pro Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you bounce the sermon on the mount off of the things that we're seeing in our country, you couldn't come up with a, a more, more stark, you know, contrast. Uh, so. Yeah. And then, you know, one of my concerns as we talk about, you know, the, the narrative of Christianity is there's a lot of people that have rejected that, you know, they say that they've given up on the institutional church or whatever. But as you kind of um, unpack that a little bit, what they really rejected a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times is uh, kind of this distorted narrative of American nationalism. Yeah. That it, camouflaging itself as Christianity, but it doesn't pass the sniff test. You know, it doesn't look like Jesus. And, and so um, for a lot of people, I think saying no to that version of Christianity is the beginning, uh, not the end, but it's the beginning of maybe a more authentic faith. I, th I think you're right. I think there's, there's this culture of hyper-individualism that's been growing in the global West in general, but America specifically, I think, for, you know, probably a century or so. 
And and I think you're right. I think what we're seeing politically is the product of that, that, you know, my my particular rights are more important than anyone else's that, you know, we uphold the the sovereign self as our highest value. And and I wonder some of us locally here in some of my community, we've been talking a lot about like maybe this time of pandemic is helping us recapture that sense of common good. And and I hear that a lot from folks who are kind of in this, you know, deconstruction for lack of a better term. Uh, I think you kind of you really pointed out really well that that what they've left, the institution that they've left or the doctrine that they've left is really the very beginnings of constructing a better faith narrative. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a lot of it does go back to this. You know, we've become so hyper individualistic. Um, And when we begin, when the church buys into that um, and then you get things like, like nationalism, like consumer culture starts to infiltrate the church more and more. Um, So, you know, what, how does some of your work, how would some of your work that you're doing um, specifically through Red Letter Christians, maybe, but even specifically on the ground, um, you know, with the simple way, um, how is that sort of um, a, a counter message to that message of hyper individualism that people can take some hope in um, as we look at the common good, you know? Yeah. So, the uh, yeah, it's it's interesting as you look at history. I mean, even half the word Protestant is protest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so protest has been very important. Uh, discontentment has been one of the greatest correctives of what's gone wrong in the church. The church needs that, you know, holy discontentment and mm. whole movements, uh, monastic movements, the, the desert spirituality that happened around the time of Constantine. I mean, all of those were like kind of building a new church in the shell of the old one. And there's times over and over in church history where uh, we, we get totally confused and, and um, uh, contaminated really by mm. those, those idols of power and uh, fame and, and uh, uh, money, you know? And so we had these kind of movements as uh, Phyllis Tickle used to say, uh, every few hundred years, the church needs a rummage sale, you know, yeah get rid of stuff and get rid of the clutter. And we got to come back to the core of our faith. Um, and, and so, you know, when I look at uh, what's happening in America, I think what's happened is uh, we've had this sort of uh, branding of Christianity that uh, uh, as Wendell Berry says, uh, we, our money says in God, we trust, but our economy looks like the seven deadly sins. Mm, and, yeah. and, and, and Kierkegaard used to say where everything is Christian, nothing is Christian because you lose that essence and distinctiveness. So, you know, I, I'm not a scientist, but I understand kind of how you make a vaccine is you have a sort of diluted version of uh the disease that knocks it out of you, you know, and, and, uh, and I think it, it, there's something similar happening where uh, one of the great dangers in America is, is inoculating people from uh, true radical Christianity by offering this sort of um, watered down version, you know, so a lot of us have been coming back and going, you know, we, the, the, the best critique of what's wrong is the practice of something better. Yeah. You know, so I, yeah, I that's a Richard Rohr uh, statement. Yeah, kind totally of, yeah, is, yeah. man. And, and you know what, Rich, Richard's a great friend and he's, he's taught this over and over and he's a devout Catholic, you know, um, a Franciscan that also sees all the, the, you know, the contradictions and the, the, you know, the stuff, the funk of the church, but it's folks like that that have taught me, you know, 
And the one pastor in my neighborhood said, the church, I mean, it's kind of like Noah's Ark. Uh, and, and he said, it stinks sometimes. Think about that, you know, that giant boat with all the animals. He said, church is kind of like that. It stinks sometimes. Uh, but if you jump off, you're going to drown. And what we really need to be is, is, is about trying to uh, clean up the mess, you know. And, 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 and as Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. We want to be the change that we we, we want to see in the church. So, you know, locally, we were inspired by these, you know, these renewals in the church, St. Francis and Claire mm-hmm. and Assisi in the 13th century that heard this whisper from God say, repair my church, which is in ruins. Yeah. And literally, you know, having started in an abandoned church a couple miles from here, you know, that <laughs> that really vibed with us. And But I think, you know, we're living in a time that may be another great awakening, you know, a beautiful renewal or a new reformation that's happening in the church. Um, um, uh, so, you know, the early church in the book of Acts, that's been a big part of our inspiration, the Catholic worker movement, so many others, you know, uh, the base communities down in Latin America, there's places that we have a lot to learn from. And I think for folks that are uh, post evangelicals or ex evangelicals, they're leaving that kind of Trump evangelicalism. um, What I would say is there's an invitation to see that the landscape of Christianity is much bigger than that. In fact, that's some of the, I think the most dangerous versions of Christianity, um, that are separated from justice and the poor and the kingdom coming on earth, you know? And so we end up uh, uh, losing sight of Jesus and the core values of our faith. But boy, I mean, think about what the, the historic black church, what African-Americans like the fact that the, that they have survived the horrific things that white Christians have done in their name. And many of them that cling to a, a more robust theology and faith of that read the story of Exodus of God, you know, rescuing the slaves and forming a new society like that, that this is uh, still there. So I think for folks that are coming out of those toxic versions of white evangelicalism, we should lean in to those communities uh, of liberation and, and where, you know, maybe we join some of the congregations that are led by people of color and folks that come out of struggle that keep those roots. Yeah. Not that there's not, you know, there's, I mean, every, I think every tradition, every church has got its own funk. So we're never going to find a sure. perfect, perfect church. And if we did, we'd mess it up as soon as we yeah. got there. You know? So, but, but I think that there are um, more robust theologies, better, you know, a uh, sense of community. And when you talk about the common good, uh, I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, maybe this time of pandemic is a time of isolation or, you know, of, of, of social distancing where we come out of it with a deeper hunger for community, you know, a desire to connect and to let go of some of the clutter. I mean, after all these screens, we're probably going to want some real, uh, <laughs> you know, FaceTime and stop looking at pixels and look at people, you know, and be with people. So, yeah, um, I keep saying this is an extrovert's nightmare for me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but you know, it's interesting because I was on this uh, Renovari, which is actually Dallas uh, Willard and Richard Foster and others. They have, we, we did a conversation about what we can learn from the desert uh, spirituality of, of, you know, the kind of uh, folks that, that fl- let, you know, that went into the desert because in the period of Constantine and stuff, the church just totally got 
messed up and confused and exchanged the cross of Jesus for the sword of Rome and, you know, mm. kind of like craziness. And so they, um, but they, they lived these, this, you know, many of them, this deeply prayerful life and they, you know, um, we've got a lot to learn about that. I mean, even you think of the 40 years in the wilderness, the 40 days of Jesus in the desert. So, you know, I, I think there are some things that this space can teach us. Um, and, and there's also some things that it's surfacing, you know, uh, yeah. as, as, as folks have said so well, the pandemic didn't break America. It just showed where America's already broken. But it does, you know, I think put a magnifying glass up to where we can see some of the real, real hard work we need to do. I, um, especially those of us who follow Jesus, that if, if we believe that the barometer of our faith is, is, is evidence not in how the Tao is doing, but how the poor are doing, as Jesus said, the least of these, um, we've sure got some work to do in our country. Yeah. How do you see that, you know, carrying forward? Because I think, you know, again, I've been in conversation with a lot of folks here locally, and we talk about, you know, some of the positives that we're seeing, the the desire for connection and all of that. Once you know, once we get a vaccine or whatever it takes to kind of end this, this period of isolation, how do we carry that forward um, and not slip back into those old consumeristic, hyper-individualistic social habits? Like, you know, because um, we can do it on individual levels and that's one thing and that's necessary, but, but how, do we, how do we activate our culture uh, to continue that momentum, do you think? Uh, one of the things that uh, we, we should always be asking is what does love look like right mm. now in, in this strange season? I mean, at, at any point, I think we should ask what, what does love require of us? You know, what does it look like to love our neighbors ourselves? And in this, you know, pandemic, I think love often means um, uh, doing things that are going to protect the most vulnerable, you know, uh, uh, which, means not worshiping in physical space right now to make sure we don't, you know, jeopardize other people's health. Um, and, and, and we've always believed in sacrificial love, right? So like, uh, uh, that, that we are, um, uh, to, to honor the needs of others above our own, you know, and those kinds of things. So I think that, um, it's interesting because there's this kind of war between individualism and the common good, it seems like. But I don't I quote Jesus a lot more than I quote James Madison. But I'll have to give you one Madison <laughs> quote because as I was researching gun violence, you know, in the Second Amendment, um, James Madison, you know, the, the father of the Constitution, as he's often called and helped draft this, you know, that drafted, he said, that liberty can be endangered by the abuse of power, but liberty can also be endangered by the abuse of liberty. Mm. It's a powerful line. So they yeah. rec- he recognized that we can abuse our freedom and it can hurt other people. And it's certainly what I think's happened with our gun violence. But I think it's also, you know, with these militia groups, with these folks that are going, I got the right to, you know, get a tattoo or whatever, you know, like all that stuff is surfacing. I think this idea of like my rights yeah. and the collision that that can have with, um, the common good. And it's a delicate dance because I believe in human rights. You know, I believe in, sure. in those, those things. Uh, but I, I also think that for all of us, we should be asking, um, you know, what, what's, what's best for other folks right now. Um, meanwhile, you know, I, I think there are people who can take risks um, uh, and there are young people that are partnered in some congregations with their elderly to deliver food and things like that. Even right now, we're, I'll be uh, out tomorrow. We're going to distribute probably 600 
uh, bags of food. Uh, and we do that in a coalition. There's really smart ways that we've, uh, uh, you know, learned to do that with social distancing. Um, even here at our place today, we gave out uh, food. We're all the time. We're giving out more food than we've ever given out in yeah. the last 20 years of our community. But we're, you know, our prayer is that we would be both careful and courageous you know, that we would be careful so that we really love and care for people responsibly. But, um, you know, that we wouldn't be fearful and, you know, held captive by this, this sense of, uh, um, um, that, that, you know, I, I think fear can um, cause us to, to not do what love requires of us sometimes. So we, we want to be uh, both courageous and cautious. Yeah, I really like how you put that. Um, you mentioned um, in, in your comments there, your work with gun violence. And that was one of the things that I found really compelling at Wild Goose last year was the presentation that you did with, you know, beating a weapon into a garden tool. Uh, and I know that's been, you know, a big focus of your public work um, lately. I, I have a really specific interest in that since you and I are both kind of sons of Appalachia, you know, where gun culture is so prevalent. Um, you know, do, does that cultural background inform that work that you do in any way um does it does it create tensions for you uh and and how do we have i guess those kinds of conversations in places like west virginia and tennessee and kentucky you know where you know hunting is so much part of the culture um and and sometimes that feels threatened when we start talking about gun violence in general yeah, man. Well, I, you know, as I, I, first of all, I grew up with guns, you know, my, my family are all um, gun owners and hunters, you know, growing up and everything. Um, my wife's t- as well. She, she's often giving me a real hard time that she's a better shot than I am. But, you know, <laughs> we grew up with guns. And on a lot of these things, I, I grew up very passionate, uh, passionately uh, on the other side of some of these issues, like the death penalty, I believed, you know, for a lot of my life that uh, this was God's will it was in the Bible, you know, and I had uh, all the, the verses to back it up. And, and, and what, what I began to see was how narrowly we've come to think about what it means to be pro-life, you know, just yeah. uh, on the issue of abortion. And I think a lot of folks would be more accurate, accurate to say that they're pro-birth or they're right. yeah. anti-abortion than that they're, they're pro-life because the, the irony is you can say you're pro-life in America and still be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, you know, yeah, anti-life yeah. on kind of every, everything right. else. So I, you know, I, my, my kind of framework for so much of this that I glean, that I kind of extract from Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount that I, I um, get my cues from the early Christians who for 300 years were um, just so consistently on the side of life and standing against violence, you know? And so I, I, I like to say I'm pro-life from womb to tomb. You know, I, yeah. I do think that reducing the number of abortions and, and that that issue matters. And um, as does healthcare for those who are vulnerable and all this thing. But I think yeah, it's so know, much more nuanced, I, I think sometimes than people want to, to see, right. That to just have a, a blanket legislative approach to that um, doesn't take into consideration like you were saying, some of the healthcare issues and things like that. Yeah. So, but what I found uh, was that on the issue of gun violence and the death penalty in particular, uh, 
Christians were not the champions of life. We were actually the obstacles mm-hmm. of it. I mean, you know, and, and, and some of this was really hard stuff to, uh, to, to come to realize is that 85% of the executions in this country happen in the Bible Belt exactly where I grew up down South. I mean, they're also the same States that held on to slavery the longest, mm. but the Bible belt is the death belt. Tennessee still uses the electric chair, the electric wow. chair. Right. Wow. And so, um, you know, that th- this is, this is problematic. You know, I've, I've come to really see that the death penalty is not just an issue to debate, but it surfaces some of that, um, really dangerous theology. And it raises some of the most important questions of our faith. Like, is anybody beyond redemption? Mm. Um, I I think those are questions that are raised by the death penalty. And the same with gun violence. Guns, uh, Christians own guns at the highest rate in the country. Like we own guns at a higher rate than the general population. And white evangelical Christians in particular, the highest demographic of gun owners uh, in our country. So, you know, here we are like, worshiping Jesus who said, love your enemies and we're preparing to kill them. You know, like we, we literally are trying to hold a cross in one hand and a Glock in the other. And I think there comes a point where we see that the cross and the gun give us two really different versions of power. One says I'm willing to kill. The other says I'm willing to die. And when you read the gospel, um, of Jesus and the gospel uh, in little uh, in quotes of the NRA, you know, like that's a problem. Like they, they really stand your ground and turn the other cheek or hard to reconcile. Yeah. 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 Um, you, you mentioned, you know, some of your work um, with uh, against the death penalty. Are you seeing any progress there? I, I kind of follow, you know, your, your Twitter feed. Um, and I know that's a lot of your activity there is aimed in that direction. It, are, are we making any progress there? Absolutely, man. I mean, I'm, I'm really pumped about this one um, uh, for a lot of reasons. But one is, is that, um, you know, some things like, you know, the environment um, and, and uh, militarism, like I think we can make progress, but, you know, it, it, it's slow. It feels so slow, you yeah. know. On the death penalty, I mean, I think we could be the generation that abolishes the death penalty. Um, Every year, almost every year, a new state abolishes the death penalty. So Colorado just did that. And some of these states are led uh, by uh, conservatives or Republicans. Um, So this is not a a partisan issue. In fact, in the last election, both presidential candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, were for the death penalty. Now we see a whole bunch of uh, folks that ran for that, that have been running for president that are against the death penalty. Um, and, you know, when polled, it's very clear that it's a older generation that's still holding on to the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Like millennial Christians, for example, poll it like 80% yeah. are against the death penalty. So that's promising, you know, but, but even just in general, we, we finally reached the point where a majority of Americans are against the death penalty when, um, they're offered alternatives to it. So uh, executions are dropping almost every year to historic lows. Death sentences, which are kind of the futures of the death penalty, are the lowest they've been in like a generation, like 40 years. Wow. So those are all like really good indicators, but we've still got some hard work to do. And some of it's state by state. Some of it's, you know, the vigil at the Supreme Court. We do a vigil there every year on the steps of the Supreme Court. So um uh, but yeah, one interesting poll, I think it was Pew. They asked Americans, would Jesus be for the death penalty? 
And like 95% of Americans said, no, Jesus yeah. wouldn't be for the death penalty. We just got to convince the Christians, you know? To, to, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's um, yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear, I'm glad to hear some hopefulness there because I think that's my, my dad used to have a saying. He always told me, son, it's a process, not an event. And, you know, I think about how things like this take time and sometimes it is two steps forward and one step back, but you know, you know, the, the, the arc of history bends towards justice, I think, you know, and so we're moving in the right direction. Um, yeah. So you've been doing a lot of work also with, um, Reverend Dr. William Barber and the poor people's campaign. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, um, that effort and, and where it's going? I know, you know, in the wake of yet another, you know, racial, um, shooting, you know, in the news, uh, even though it happened months ago, we're just now hearing about it. Um, you know, these, these intersections of race and poverty and white privilege, um, seem to continue to be those things that keep pulling us backwards from the progress we seem to be making. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with the poor people's campaign, uh, what Dr. Barber's doing and, and how, maybe how people can get involved? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been, uh, uh, honored and thrilled to walk alongside all the great folks in the poor people's campaign, uh, uh, folks like Reverend, you know, Liz Theo Harris, who I knew back in Philadelphia as an organizer here, uh, and, and, uh, Reverend Barber and, um, so many great folks there. Uh, I mean, if folks are not familiar, they can, you know, check out the, the poor people's campaign online. And, um, we, we've been, you know, building a movement around the country. There's stuff happening in state by state. Um, but Reverend Barber talks a lot about fusion organizing, right? Mm. We have to see that all these issues are intersectional. Um, and, and what's, uh, 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 it's hard to just care about a single issue. We need a movement that's really addressing those, but also offering an alternative vision, you know, so we call it a national call for moral revival. We believe that the political crisis in America is also a spiritual crisis. Yeah. And that, that, that there's, there's, um, some of this stuff that we're wrestling is not flesh and blood, but it's principalities and powers that run deep in this country. So, um, with the pandemic, there's a lot of things that are uh, sort of pivoting and, and, and uh, you know, evolving. And we were going to do a march on Washington um, on June 20th. Now that's going to be what looks to be the largest uh, virtual protest in history. So there's going to be all kinds of stuff happening uh, in a coordinated effort around the country. So folks can join the mass meetings that'll be happening and uh, join the action that'll be happening in June next month. But like you said, it's not about a moment. It's about a movement. And, mm. and we really think that uh, putting the 140 million uh, poor and low wealth folks in the spotlight and really allowing uh, um, our job is, is to amplify those who are struggling, you know, and that's, again, I think the real test of a healthy society is, is how our most vulnerable people are doing. And when we, you know, I was a part of a witness on the border. Um, uh, so where, where we're addressing the separation of families, you know, the kids that are in detention centers. So we've seen some really, really alarming things happen over the past few years. And as Reverend Barber often says, um, so many of these things are not about left and right. Uh, they're about right and wrong. Yeah, so yeah. We're not just talking about a partisan thing. We're talking about a Jesus thing, you know, and, and a, a really a, a justice thing. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think, 
the, the idea of centering the voice of the marginalized. Um, I think we've kind of lost sight of that um, in a lot of ways in, in American culture. Um, but but biblically, I don't know that you could find a more sound theme than centering the voice of the marginalized. You know, the, I, I often tell folks here, the Bible is is the literature of the oppressed, um, but we often read it through the lens of privilege instead of through the lens of oppression. So, yeah, we, yeah. we created uh, ways of thinking where, like, for instance, uh, I heard someone say it yesterday that we're to be a voice for the voiceless. Um, and I, there, there are uh, folks that have used that language. It's even in scripture in places. But you end up going, there's a lot of times where we jump up to be a voice for the voiceless when they actually have a voice. Yeah. And so what we would do better is to posture ourselves as the one who holds the mic and who stands alongside them rather than in front of them. And um, uh, so, you know, I think that kind of solidarity is what we need. And it's what we see in Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't just come to help the poor. He wasn't just this great philanthropist. He came born as a brown skinned Palestinian Jew in the middle of a genocide, was executed, uh, you know, jailed and executed on a cross. He, 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 he the whole story of Jesus is a story of divine solidarity, you know, with those yeah. on the borders and on the margins. Um so, you know, I'm convinced that a lot of times in the, in, we, we don't have a compassion problem. We have a relationship problem and a proximity problem. Mm, yeah. It's not that we don't care about the ports and we don't know many folks. We're good at talking about Muslims or immigrants or whatever. But like, like in the end, these are not just issues to debate. They're neighbors to be loved. And if yeah. we really, once those, those statistics have names and faces like uh, Ahmad Arbery down in Georgia, like that's, that's what I think um, uh, puts a fire in our bones at the importance of things like racial justice. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, so that's, uh, that's a big part of what we, we've got to do. Mother Teresa, she said, uh, it can be very fashionable to talk about the poor, but not as fashionable to talk to them. Yeah. Uh, and if we really care about folks who are struggling, we, we know their names. We live in relationship to them. And, uh, and and for many of us, this is not an intellectual enterprise. They were born into the struggle. And so we need to, you know, really uh, to center their voices and their stories as we try to sensitize other people's hearts. Yeah. Well, this is great stuff, Shane. And I could I could go on forever, but I'm sure you've got a tight schedule today and so we're kind of coming oh, close to the to end talk, of the man. time <laughs> um is, is there is there anything that anything new you're working on that our listeners might be interested in or where can people find you um online or yeah um, absolutely well you know one thing that we didn't talk about that comes to mind i especially think for folks that might be trying to wrestle with how to ground ourselves in some kind of prayer or spiritual practices is I had the privilege of working with a, a whole ton of people a few years ago on a project called common prayer. And um, it's, it's uh, in a book form. It's online to commonprayer.net and it's in a, on a uh, app on mobile. Yep, devices. I've got the app on my phone and my iPad. <laughs> yeah, man. I think yeah. especially in the pandemic, it's a great way to feel connected. And, and not only is it prayers, but, um, there's um, 
practices. You know, there's suge- ideas of how to flesh out prayer, how to take action. Every month we kind of think about a different uh, practice of the faith. And like this month we're talking about hospitality, you know, and so there's uh, things like that that people might really uh, vibe with. Um, and people can can uh, follow me on, I'm, I'm mainly on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and if you want to check out our local work, it's the simple way, the simple way dot org. And our work, you know, around the movement work uh, is redletterchristians.org. So really pumped to talk with you, man. Thanks everybody for listening. Once again, we're so grateful to um, Shane for spending some time with us to talk about all the important work that he's involved in and all of the ways that, that the rest of us can kind of um, get connected and get involved in some of this really important work as, as we try to, to create a, a better space for us all to live in here on planet Earth. As always, if you're interested in the content that we're creating and curating for the Accidental Tomatoes community, you can find us online at AccidentalTomatoes.com and you can find us across the social media world. We are at Accidental Tomatoes. Uh, if you have any ideas or suggestions for future guests or topics for us to cover, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through our website. You can message us on our social media channels, or you can send us an email at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, we would love for you to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts, ratings and reviews go a long way towards helping folks find us and connect with the community and participate in the conversation that we're having together. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through Patreon, where you can help us to offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn more. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes Podcast.